Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet and this is the 468th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Ben Raines, award-winning environmentalist and documentary filmmaker who is going to talk to us about the, I believe his book, The Last Slave Ship, the true story of how Clotilda was found, her descendants, in an extraordinary reckoning. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zepp Zavlo. Our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. To begin with, welcome to the show, Ben. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we, we love having you, you on, on the, the air with us. <laughs> uh, we call this first segment Farouk Tanaran, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on how the Clotilda uh, about the Clotilda and how it ended up, and I use this uh, stretching it, shipwrecked. Yeah, absolutely. So the Clotilda is the last ship that brought enslaved Africans to the United States. And um, because it was illegal at the time, the ship was burned afterward and hidden for 160 years. Um, the reason it, the ship was burned it, Slavery, it was still legal in the U.S. in 1860, slavery prior to the Civil War. But in 1808, Congress had passed a law making it illegal to bring any more Africans into the country. And so in the lead up to the Civil War, there were certain elements in the South who wanted to reopen the African trade because um, enslaved people had become very expensive in the Deep South. So you could purchase a person in, say, Maryland or Virginia, the northern slave states, for $500. In the South, it was, uh, in Alabama particularly, it was $2,000. Now, to understand those numbers, multiply them times 30. So it was, it cost $60,000 to buy a person in Alabama by 1860 because cotton had become so big. So this um, steamboat captain in Mobile, Timothy Mayer, decided to send a ship uh, to Africa and purchase as many people as he could with 27 pounds of gold. Um, and bring them back into the country. He did it on a bet because he wanted to thumb his nose at the federal government. So um, the, the reason we really are talking about the Clotilda, though, isn't the bet. It isn't really even that it's the last slave ship. It is the most well-documented slave ship voyage we have in the entire history of, of the Atlantic slave trade because we know everything about the people who came on the Clotilda. So as I mentioned, it had been illegal to bring Africans into the country since 1808. So by the time of the Civil War, almost every enslaved person in the U.S. had been born in the U.S. Uh, they, they, they did not know what life was like in Africa. They had not gone through the Middle Passage. Um, so those were not, you know, that was not the, the frame of reference as people came out of slavery. The people, the survivors, um, most of them didn't have that experience. But the Clotilda people did because they were captured in 1860, and they were all between 12 and 30 years old. So they lived into the 1900s. Uh, the last survivor lived until 1935. And so they were interviewed many, many times because America was captivated by the story of this last slave ship when it came in, and because the Africans built a town after they were freed in Alabama called Africatown, and it's still there today. Um, and it actually grew into quite a, a 
prosperous place. So because we know all of this information about them and because it happened so late, we have the entire story of slavery with the Clotilda people. We know uh, what their lives were like in Africa before they were captured straight from their own mouths. We know what happened when their villages were raided and they were kidnapped by uh, this tribe in Africa, the Dahomans, which was the most ruthless of all of the African tribes, uh, it turns out. We know what happened to them in the Barracoon, the slave prison. We know the people who bought them. We know how much they paid for them. We know the ship they were brought to America on. And then we know what happened to them after they were freed because they told their story so many times in interviews and, and famously in Zora Neale Hurston's book, Barracoon, which was about this whole saga. So with all of that knowledge, the Clotilda becomes uh, the origin story for the African diaspora globally, not just the African-American diaspora, but anybody in North America or South America or the Caribbean whose ancestors came here in the hold of a ship. This is their story. You know, for most Americans whose, whose ancestors were enslaved, they don't know this sort of detail at all. Their story only begins usually, you know, with the last person perhaps who was a slave. They don't know anything about their life before that. So the Clotilda story can tell them the story of their ancestors, that longing for home and life and loved ones left behind, uh, you know, the, the struggles. The, the, it, it is the origin story for um, – the African-American population. And that's the power of the story. So that's why we're talking about the Clotilda. It is one of only 13 slave ships ever found globally out of the 20,000 ships used in the slave trade. Uh, and it's the only one ever found that, that was in the American trade. So is that a good background? That is an excellent background. Well, we have a lot right. more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement. Catch up on news about KALA. And listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Ben Raines, award-winning environmentalist, journalist, and documentary filmmaker, and we're talking with him about his book, The Last Slave Ship, the true story and how the Clotilla was found, her descendants, and an extraordinary reckoning. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Ed, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Rick. Uh, ben, you mentioned one of the things that makes the Clotilda really unique is the uh, evidence and information available um, about the history of that ship and the people that were on it. Um, was this all oral, or are there some written records somewhere? Well, actually, there are many, many written records. Um, and, you know, we, we have records in the Federal Archives about uh, the ship and certain aspects of, of the different people involved. Um, then we have uh, a lot of um, 
you know, courthouse records and things like that uh, that document all of the story. Um, but these people were interviewed over and over, um, you know, from 1870 to the 1930s. And, and uh, there are, you know, Harper's Magazine interviewed them in 18, I think, 74. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, they were interviewed again and again. So we have both oral histories and a lot of um, written records and things in, in government archives and things like that. Okay, Ed. Oh, sorry, Ed. Brett. The other Brett. <laughs> I, I see how it is, Rick. Um, ben, you said that uh, the Clotilda is the only American uh, slave ship that's been... Uh, recovered. Was it fairly typical of uh, the ships that would have been used uh, before the ban to bring slaves into America, or was or had things changed uh, with design by that point? It, it was not typical at all. Um, so the Clotilda was actually a fairly small ship. It was only 86 feet long. Um, the reason they chose it was because it was the fastest ship in Mobile. And um, so that was the it was a two masted schooner, but it had been outfitted with copper sheathing on the hull, which makes a ship faster because it prohibits marine growth, barnacles and moss and stuff. And because it covers up the seams in all the planking and makes just a more hydrodynamic hull. And then they extended the mass. The typical slave ship could carry many, many more people. A lot of the slave ships that it, when, you know, the trade was really going, uh, including during this era could carry 2,000 captives, whereas the Clotilda had 110 people on board. Um, so it was actually much smaller. It was designed purely for this, you know, sneaky, illegal run. And part of the reason they chose it was because it was basically an 18-wheeler of the day. You know, the Clotilda's, uh, the five years that it was sailing before the trip to Africa for the slaves, it was running from Mobile to Mexico or to Cuba it was taking Alabama lumber, you know, pine and oak and, and cotton and coming back with oranges and bananas and things like that. So it was really, you know, just a, a, a coastal cargo ship. The fact that it had a retractable keel designed for the shallow Gulf Coast waters and Caribbean waters so that if they got in shallow water, they could pull the keel up. You would never have that design of a ship for a, a standard ocean going ship that's going to sail to Africa, you know, on the open Atlantic. And the Clotilda suffered because of it. It was almost destroyed on the way to uh, Dahomey uh, by a hurricane. And uh, right after they left Alabama, uh, it knocked the um, boom off the mast, which is that big piece that holds the sail on, uh, and broke the rudder in half. So it was too small for the voyage, for sure. Hmm. Ben, uh, could you uh, uh, know that uh, part of the story is her discovery uh, can you give us a, a thumbnail sketch on the process that was used to discover the wreckage? Yeah, so it started with a phone call from an old colleague of mine who uh, used to work at the newspaper as the outdoor guy. And he's currently the hunting manager at a Bass Pro Shops uh, here where I live. And he called me one day and said, hey, I think you should go look for the Clotilda. And I said, Jeff, that's crazy. And he said, no, no, I think you might be able to find it. And the reason he said that is because I'm also a charter captain, and I take people into the Mobile Tensaw Delta, okay. the giant swamp where the Clotilda was burnt. Um, and so, you know, he told me to look for it. I said, Jeff, that's like looking for pirate treasure. There's no way I'm going to be able to go find this ship that was burned 160 years ago. Uh, but 
he kind of sold me on it. So I typed um, Clotilda into Google after we got off the phone. I ordered the history books that were available about the, the ship, and um, I dove in, I, and I got into all the primary historical documents. Um, and, you know, I really found the ship in a library. I mean, I got in a wetsuit and, and got in the water to find the physical vessel. But the reason I found it, and nobody else had been able to find it in the last 160 years, and people spent tens of thousands of dollars looking for it. The reason I found it was because I found two clues that told me the spot where the ship was burned in this giant swamp that is 13 miles wide and 60 miles long. Okay, this is 250,000 acres. And that's, you know, people have been searching in there. Um, so the key difference for me that I made me able to find it, I figured out that the steamboat captain who paid for the voyage, Timothy Mayer, who had become quite famous afterward as the last slaver and was written about over and over and interviewed a lot. In fact, when he died, the New York Times did an obit for him. I figured out that he was lying in every interview he ever gave about where the ship was. And he always said different places. <laughs> so um, I found in the historical record, one, the captain who sailed the ship to Africa saying he burned it at 12 Mile Island. And somehow every other historian had ignored that. And then I found Cujo Lewis, the, um, who, who was written about in Barracoon. I found a newspaper interview with him from the 1890s where he also said 12 Mile Island. So then I had two people saying this very specific spot, two people who were there that night, and I knew where that spot was, and I knew all the places the steamboat captain had suggested. Many of them you couldn't have gotten an ocean-going sailing vessel into because they were too shallow. So that was the, that was the process. If, if, uh... How'd you feel when you finally discovered the, the wood? Well, um, I was I was elated but uh, cautious because I first discovered another ship. Um, I went out looking for the Clotilda at this place, Twelve Mile Island, and I went just in my boat on a day when a winter storm meant that the tide was three feet lower than normal, and I found a two mast or a, I found a schooner from the 1850s. And I brought marine archaeologists. They investigated it and said there is nothing here that says this is not the Clotilda. So then, um, you know, Africa Town, the town started by the Africans, was rejoicing. They went crazy with the news. They were so excited. The story I wrote went viral, uh, so much so that two days after I wrote it, and the, the, the headline was, A Wreck Found by Reporter May Be the Last American Slave Ship. Um, two days after that story ran, the ambassador of Benin flew down from Washington, D.C., and was on my boat up the river to um, at the behest of his president in Benin, that's the next to Nigeria, that's where everyone on the Clotilda came from, to do a religious ceremony at the site. Um, so then this group, the Slave Rex Project, which includes the Smithsonian and the National Park Service and a bunch of different organizations, divers with a purpose, they came to town to investigate that wreck and discovered it was not the Clotilda. Uh, so I was sort of humiliated internationally. <laughs> um, <laughs> So when I actually yes. found the ship two weeks after that, uh, I was very excited. And by that point, we knew it had to be Clotilda because there was nothing else in that stretch of river that could be. Sure. And the second ship we found was exactly the right size. Sure. Great. Hey, Ed, do you have a question? I do. Um, I read a review of, of your book um, online, Ben, and um, I ran across the mention of a ship called The Black Joke which was part of a British um, anti-slavery fleet that apparently patrolled mm -hmm. the Atlantic. Um, England outlawed slavery about 
18, about the same time as importation was made illegal here. But it's, it strikes me as odd that the British Empire would suddenly have this humanitarian streak erupt. Uh, so what's really going on there? Was this about um, reducing the number of African slaves that, that made their way into Brazil? No, no, I don't think so at all. Um, I think that, that in England there was a very um, dramatic change in public opinion. And so, you know, the, the English first um, banned uh, slaves in, in England, and then it spread to the colonies. And they were actually well ahead of America. And they started that anti-slaving squadron. And so, you know, um, Victoria and Albert, Prince Albert, her husband, his first public speech after they got married was uh, to an anti-slaving um, group. And he, did, he called it a scourge on the earth, um, you know, and all this stuff. So I, I think England was, was genuine in that, and they kind of led the world. Um, you know, America was, was not, uh, <laughs> not quite there yet. Um, in fact, you know, after I mentioned that slavery was outlawed in 1808, every American president, from Thomas Jefferson, Adams, uh, every all the nine presidents between Jefferson all the way up to Lincoln, every one of them pardoned convicted slavers who were caught on ships full of illegal slaves being brought into America. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was the only president who ever uh, put anyone to death for illegal slaving. So, um, you know, America, public opinion was very different, I think, because the bulk of the work done by enslaved people was done in America, whereas with the English, it was almost all in the Caribbean. Okay. So it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. Perfect. Brett, do you uh, have a question? Indeed, I do. So you said earlier that they burned the ship to try and hide the evidence. So what, uh, what was left for you to find? Well, they didn't do a very good job burning it. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, one thing about a ship is it's sitting in water, and ships are quite leaky. Um, you know, there's an old wooden ship like that always had water in the bilge. So as they started burning it, um, they had also pulled the seacocks to, you know, the plug to let water brush in because they wanted it to sink as well. And they knew the part below the water line would not burn. So um, they lit it, they pulled the, the plugs, they lit the ship on fire, and it burned, but it was also simultaneously sinking the whole time it was burning. And all that water in the hull, in, in the hold was um, putting steam off, in effect, kind of a, a uh, fire extinguisher almost. So the ship was very incompletely burned. Um, it, it, uh, and, and so what the rest of it settled down to the bottom and then filled up with mud which has protected the hull. Um, the, the, having mud in it, if you have about six inches of mud, uh, you know, sediment, sand, whatever, in water on top of something, it it's effectively um, hermetically seals it off. It's like a time capsule. There's no decay because there's no oxygen. So um, the ship is actually quite intact. The lead archaeologist of the team working on it says, you know, it's the most intact slave ship ever found. I have no doubt that it is well-preserved enough to dig up. If we were sitting next to each other, I could actually show you a, an image of the ship uh, that I made on my depth finder on my boat last week, and you can see the ship. You can see the outline clear as a day. Um, you, can, you, can see, um, you can see elements of the structure of the ship. I mean, it's pretty dramatic. And so the hold where the captives were kept appears to be entirely intact. 
Ben, a, a, a question I, I did a you know background on your book, and you actually traveled to Africa to Benin to uh, do some research. Um, uh, what what motivated you to go to Benin? Uh, well, um, a number of things. Uh, one, though, was um, the Pope of Voodoo. So there's a man named Dada Dagbo Hunan Hulin II, who is the leader of Benin's native religion, which is called Vodan. It's yes. voodoo. You know, the, we have voodoo in Brazil and the Caribbean and Louisiana from people who were Africans who were imported from Benin. So this guy is the head uh, voodoo guy for the world. You know, he's literally just like the Pope is for the Catholics. That's what he is. So he came here and went up the river on my boat to the site and did a very elaborate ceremony um, on behalf of, of the people of Benin, asking the ancestors of, you know, asking the people on the Clotilda, their spirit, to forgive um, the Fon, the Dahomans who sold them. Um, and so while he was here, he invited me to come. And I, I wanted to go. I wanted to see, you know, the place where it all started. The really unique thing about the Clotilde story is that the, the, the entire – everybody involved, both the people who captured the people who were sent to America and all the tribes from them, they all live today in modern-day Benin. And so um, they're, having a, a, um, they're having an issue there with resentment in the, in the country. And they're worried about a tribal war erupting like in Rwanda, which was a tribal uh, resentment gone awry. And so in Benin, the main tribe is still the Fon tribe. That's who the Dahomey Empire were. They spent 300 years capturing and killing all the other tribes. They captured <laughs> about 4 million people from these other tribes that were all within Benin. You have to understand that Benin was about the size of Alabama or Pennsylvania. And so imagine that over 300 years, 4 million people are stolen out of that area by one tribe. So today, um, there's there's great worry in Benin about this, and and you can tell what tribe people are because they still have facial scarifications. So you can look at somebody in Benin and know, oh, that's one of the people who captured my people. Um, mm. So it's it you know it was fascinating to go there and see it, all of that um, sure. and see them wrestling with the legacy, and they do it very differently than we do. Sure, um, they have you know, incredible monuments to the enslaved all over the country, but they're brutal. They're, they're statues in public places of people bound and gagged on their knees. Um, you know, you'd never see anything like that in America. And the whole effort is to shame the main ethnic group, the Dahomey, the Fon tribe, for what they did during the slavery era. Wow. Ed, you have a question? Yes. Um, again, uh, I read a review of the book, and it mentioned in there that the survivors uh, of the Clotilda um, established their own town, but um, but they were ridiculed at some point by fellow apparently American-born African Americans. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was one of the really fascinating things. And, um, you know, the Africans talked about it in their interviews. They were interviewed over and over. And so, um, you know, they converted to Christianity, for instance, after they were after they were freed from enslavement. But they built their own church uh, because they didn't want to go to a church with the American blacks who made fun of them and called them savages. Um, you know, the Africans had facial scarifications, tattoos. Um, they were, you know, many of them had been trained as warriors um, and they couldn't speak English the way Americans could. And they were mocked 
they talk about it constantly being mocked by American-born blacks as early as when they were enslaved, 1860s, right on up into um, the modern era. Cujo Lewis, in fact, you know, his sons, he had he had five children and three of his sons were murdered um, because they were, you know, they were other. They were always in fights because of their Africanness, even from their father. Um, and so I interviewed people today, grown people, teachers and things who um, had hidden that they were related to the Clotilda Africans from people in Africatown even because they were embarrassed. There was this stigma to it. The president of the Clotilda Descendants Association, um, who, whose uh, great-great-grandfather was one of the captives on the Clotilda, did not know he was uh, a descendant until he was 60 years old because his mother had lied to him about it his entire mm-hmm. life. Um, and, and his aunt, his great aunt, who he knew all his life, who lived up until 1992, was born to one of the Clotilda Africans. She was, you know, she was the, the, I think, third to last child that one of the Africans had. Um, and he knew her all his life. And she would tell him he was African, that this was his heritage. And his mother would say, don't listen to anything Aniva says. She's crazy. She's not African and neither are you. Uh, which I just thought was extraordinary. So, you know, some of them hid the history from themselves. Some of them had the history hidden from them. Um, and, and then, you know, we're seeing this legacy on both sides of the Atlantic. I just mentioned the struggles they're having over there. This ship has sort of corrupted the people associated with it through uh, the centuries in some ways. It has haunted them, not corrupted. It has haunted them and haunts the descendants today of, of even the, the enslavers. They are totally embarrassed of their family's role in it. They have never spoken publicly about it. Wow. Uh, they refuse to have any meetings with the people in Africatown. Now, that's being haunted by something your ancestors did, you know? I mean, it's, it's really pretty extraordinary. Well, Brad, you get the last question if you've got a short one. Uh, I have a very short one. So you said that you uh, had images of this uh, from your depth finder from last time you were out. Are there any plans to actually um, dig it out and preserve it, or is it just leave it there? Descendants, no, the descendants and I have every plan to have that done. Um, The state of Alabama is resisting, and it keeps talking about preserving in situ, which means leaving it to rot in the mud, which is absurd. Um, As I mentioned, this is a globally important artifact. You know, this is the most intact slave ship ever found. It is the last American slave ship, the only American slave ship ever found. And we have this entire history built around it. So what we want to see done, there is a 42-acre site in Africatown that um, it was an, uh, it was a housing project that the city of Mobile let fall into ruin and was condemned. And so it was then raised last year. We want to build a museum there that will house the wreck of the ship and tell the story of the 110, the 110 passengers who were on it. And it will be the national monument to the enslaved. Right now, it appears the state of Alabama is locked up in some sort of critical race theory thing and is refusing to dig up the ship, which is absurd. They keep saying, well, we don't know if it can be done. We have dug up so many Confederate warships, and the state of Alabama just surveyed two because they want to dig them up. How on earth could we not dig up this incredibly important artifact? So I hope you hear more about our efforts to dig it up, and I hope you all will get behind it, because it would be an incredible um, thing to have on display. You know, I interviewed a guy in Africatown who said, when I went to the Lorraine Motel where they killed Dr. King, when I saw that place, I cried. Well, that's the same history we've got in that ship, 
every black person in America's ancestors came here in the hold of a ship just like that. And when people see it, they're going to cry. And so that's kind of, you know, that's how I feel about that. I am going to fight to have it dug up. Um, and I think we're going to succeed. We wish you well. Well, when we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please, please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 468th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Rick Sweet, and we would like to thank our guest, Ben Rains, award-winning environmental journalist and documentary filmmaker who talked with us about his book, The Last Slave Ship, the true story of how Clotilda was found, her descendants, and an extraordinary reckoning. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience a great Bethutu proverb, Kota Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.